Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 19. We'll finish up this chapter today, verses 30 to 38. Genesis 19, 30 to 38. We come this morning to the account of Lot's incestuous relationship with his two daughters right after the destruction of Sodom. You may recall a few weeks ago when the text spoke of circumcision back in chapter 17 that I told you of one writer that I read, one commentary that I have, where the writer thought that that was not an appropriate passage to preach on because it was such an indelicate subject. Well, I couldn't wait to see what he had to say about this text. And sure enough, there was no surprise. Let me read you what he said. Certainly, all must agree that verses 30 to 38, though it certainly serves a good purpose, cannot be the text of a sermon. So here we go again. Now, folks, the Bible, it's true, the Bible speaks so bluntly about the ugliest things. It ought to be uncomfortable for us to read such things. But it's around us in the world all the time. We're confronted with ugliness everywhere we turn. The difference between the Bible and the world is that God's Word speaks truthfully about these things, calls sin, sin, teaches us to hate it, and points us to a solution. While the world looks at the ugly things, wraps them in pretty paper, and tries to make it sound normal, even appealing. So I would argue this is an appropriate text, ugly as it is, and we're going to think about it for a few moments. Let me read it, verses 30 to 38, Genesis 19. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, our father's old and there's no man around here to lie with us as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the old daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son. She named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son. She named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. There are three truths, I think, that this passage has to teach us, at least. Let me just share three things that I think we see here. 
The first is this, that sin always threatens us. Sin always threatens, or we could say sin is a constant threat. Just thinking about events of recent weeks, you know, a little rubber runabout boat is no threat at all to a mighty warship like the USS Cole. So how did a billion dollar destroyer get completely knocked out of commission with a 40 foot gaping hole in its hull by a little rubber runabout boat? Well, it was busy refueling. Its crew was preoccupied. They weren't thinking about an attack. Uh, but terrorists are always a threat. And the same thing was true of Lot in our text this morning. He had to learn the hard way that sin is always a threat. Notice that sin is a threat when you least expect it. I don't think Lot's thinking about being tempted with sin. That Lot was saying, that was close. Glad I wasn't one of those wicked people who were destroyed. And then when he least expected it, here he is, drunk and having an incestuous relationship with both his daughters. For you see, sin always threatens, even when you least expect it. Interestingly, this isn't the only time that people fell into sin right after being delivered from God's judgment. Think about Noah. The flood comes and destroys the earth. And what's the next scene? Noah and his family have been spared, and then here's Noah, drunk in his tent and disgraced before his sons. The same kind of excess that was characteristic of the world that was just destroyed. Or think of the exodus from Egypt. God miraculously delivered his people through the Red Sea and Pharaoh is destroyed for his off-again, on-again refusal to obey God's word. And only a few days out of Egypt, here are God's people complaining and wishing we were back in Egypt as slaves as fickle as the Egyptians, who just just had been destroyed. You see, again and again throughout the scriptures, we find the same thing. God delivers his people from some danger. He brings them through some judgment. And suddenly, when they're all relaxed and least expected, they're tempted with the exact same kind of sin that God just judged. And too often, they succumb. For while they may be unprepared, sin never takes a vacation. It always threatens. But this onslaught of sin doesn't just come when Lot least expected. It also comes when he's least prepared for it. When he can do the least to handle it. Think of what's going on with Lot when we find him here this morning. This man's in pain. This is a hurting man. He has lost everything. 
he is grief stricken. He has lost his house and his position and his friends and his whole community. He has lost his wife. He is in mourning. He is filled with grief. He's demoralized. What is going on? What's happening to me? How did I get in this situation? Why didn't I see this coming? And according to verse 30, he's afraid. God allows him to go into the town of Zoar, but he can't be happy there. If God rained down fire and brimstone on the whole community, what if he does it again? Here I sit, and perhaps a town similar to Sodom, I don't know. Lot feared for his life, and finally he fled to the hills to live in a cave. Here's a man who is confused, he's hurting, he's in despair, he's afraid. No wonder he's an easy prey when his daughters say, here, why don't you have a good bottle of wine? He's happy to drown his troubles. Oh, but here when he's least prepared, temptation strikes, for sin always threatens. Especially when you're weak. 1 Corinthians 10, the Holy Spirit says it this way, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You, sin, you see, sin doesn't wait till you're ready. Sin doesn't wait till you have a heads up that it's on the way. Embrace yourself. No. Sin strikes like a terrorist out of nowhere when you least expect it, when you're least prepared for it. We must be constantly vigilant. Second truth, sin only breeds more sin. Sin only breeds more sin. You know, there's a strange kind of thinking going around these days. It says if you're really tempted with some sin, if there is just this urge to do or to say something that you know is not right, but it's just an overwhelming desire to do this, Perhaps it would be good to just get it out. Just express it. You'll feel a lot better. Maybe unleashing this sinful urge would stop you from doing a bigger sin later. So the thinking goes. Oh, dear people, that's not how it works. Here we learn that it's exactly the opposite. As, as this truth is reiterated again and again throughout God's word, sin only breeds more sin. Little sin is only the seedbed for great sin. We see that throughout this whole passage. It's true in regard to Lot's daughters, for example. Lot, out of love for the world, raised his family in the wicked environment of Sodom. The New Testament tell us, tells us that the wickedness bothered Lot all the time. It grieved his heart, and the mess he had to live in. But the truth is, he tolerated it. He didn't take any steps to change the situation. Year after year, he raised his family there, and his family soaked in the luxuriant wickedness of Sodom. But now, finally, he has his daughters out of that wicked city. 
Not because he did anything about it, but God in his grace snatched them up and almost dragged them out of Sodom before it was, destru- before it was destroyed. Finally, his girls are out of Sodom. But Sodom is not out of his girls. Their wicked scheme to get their father drunk and then have an incestuous relationship with him in order to become pregnant, that scheme is right out of the playbook of Sodom, isn't it? This is how it always works. Sin begets sin. Lot's tolerance of the sinful environment begets daughters who are filled with sinful thinking and produce the very sin that grieved him, but he wouldn't get away from it. Same thing is true in regard to Lot himself. Remember that terrible moral lapse earlier in the chapter when in order to be a protective host to these messengers who proved later to be angels, Lot actually offered his virgin daughters to the sex-crazed mob to do with as they please. How far can a man depart from the protection he owes his children? Fortunately, it never happened. The angelic messengers pulled Lot back into the house and blinded the eyes of the mob, and they made a quick escape out of the city before destruction fell. Finally, the girls are safe again. Finally, they're back in their father's home where they can receive the protection that they deserve, right? No. What's happened now? The kind of sin that Lot was willing to tolerate back in Sodom, he now commits against his daughters. That's how sin is. First, you tolerate it in others, and then you're doing it yourself. Sin only breeds worse sin. Oh, but the worst example of this principle has to do with Lot's descendants. You see, there's a long history of sin here. There's Lot's sin. He looked towards Sodom and then continually moved closer and closer, as we saw last week. He tolerated the perversion. He failed to raise his family to be different than the wicked city. He failed to nurture his wife's faith. And now his wife is destroyed, and Lot's sin has produced the same kinds of attitudes in his daughters. They, have no, they had no problem being engaged to wicked men in Sodom, and now they have no problem to bring Sodom with them into their own home and reinstate its wickedness in their relationship with their father. And the result of it all is two little boys, one named Moab, the one named ben who became the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Oh, but sin only breeds more sin, folks. And that's what we see in these descendants of Lot, the Moabites and the Ammonites, would over the years present Israel with the worst carnal seduction they ever faced. Joyce Baldwin explains it. She says, the Moabites worshiped a fertility god and indulged in orgies which beguiled the Israelites on their way 
to the promised land. Remember the events in Baal of Peor? Where they were taken, the religious orgies of the Moabites. God would have destroyed them all if it wasn't for Phineas. She goes on, and Ammon became noted for cruelty, not only in war, but even in religious observance. For Moloch was the Ammonite god who demanded child sacrifices. How did Israel get to the place years later where they practiced the religious immorality of the Moabites and willingly took their little covenant children and put them into the burning arms of this idol Moloch to sacrifice them? How did they get to this despicable place? Because Lot tolerated sin. And his daughters practiced what their father tolerated. And produced sons who just continued to go down the same road. And sin only breeds worse sin. Dear brothers and sisters, God has not released his people, even the righteous, from the law of sowing and reaping. We still read it in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Even the righteous reap what they sow. Lot was a righteous man in his heart. He was grieved by the sin. But he sowed to the wind and he reaped a whirlwind of wickedness. You see, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can sow wickedness in the hearts of our children through our neglect or even intentionally and then somehow escape reaping the kind of harvest that Lot reaped. No. Sin has consequences. Sin breeds worse sin. Just as the careful discipleship of the work of the Spirit, discipleship to Christ, also reaps consequences of greater discipleship. And time will make it clear which we've sown. That's just the way it is. So what can we do? Well, that brings us to our final point. Run to Jesus for safety. Run to Jesus for safety. You know, in every airplane accident investigation, there is a concerted effort to learn exactly what went wrong and what should have been done so that it will never happen again. Well, we've talked about what went wrong here, what Lot did wrong. What should Lot have done? 
The text doesn't really talk about that. We have to think about it a little bit. How could he have prevented this great tragedy that came even after the destruction of Sodom? Well, I think the answer is found in the verse just before our text, verse 29. There we read, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Oh, yeah, Abraham. Remember Abraham? All God's covenant promises had been given to Abraham, remember? God's care, God's protection, God's cleansing. And all those things weren't just for Abraham, but they were for Abraham's entire household. All of his sons, all of his servants, even foreign slaves that he bought. Everyone connected with Abraham. And where does Abraham live? Well, remember, he took the hill country while Lot went down to the plain where Sodom and Gomorrah were. He lived up in the hills near the great trees of Mamre. And what's Abraham been doing recently? Pleading for Sodom. Praying that God would deliver his nephew Lot which God did, according to verse 29, for Abraham's sake. Because his promises were to Abraham. So here's the question. Why didn't Lot go back to Abraham? When the angel pulled them out of the city, delivered them from Sodom and said, now run to the mountains. What other mountains could he have been talking about than where Abraham was? Where God's promises were? Where God's people were? Lot said, no, I want to go here to the town of Zoar. Which apparently was in the opposite direction. And even later, when Lot became afraid in Zoar and said, we've got to get out of here. We've got to head for the hills. We've got to find a safer place. And he went and lived in the cave. Why then didn't he flee to Abraham? Why didn't he head for Abraham's camp? Years earlier, Lot had departed, and they parted company with Abraham. Because Lot was so prosperous, and Abraham was so prosperous that the land couldn't support them both. But that's not the problem now. Lot has nothing but the shirt on his back and his two daughters. That's it. And in Abraham's camp is everything Lot needs. There's security there. He's afraid. It's a safe place. They're surrounded by God's promises and God's care. There's forgiveness there. Remember, circumcision says, I, I will cleanse you. God's cleansing is in the camp of Abraham. There, there, there's community there. There's healing for Lot's 
grief, their husbands for Lot's daughters, among the hundreds of Abraham's trained men. There must be husbands there. There's a future there. There's hope for restoration. There's a promise for long-term prosperity in the land. In the camp of Abraham, in the covenant community of Abraham's family where God's name dwells, where God's promises dwell, there is everything Lot needs. So why didn't he go there? We don't know. Pride? It would be too much like admitting failure to go running back to Uncle Abraham. It would require repentance. You might have to admit you were wrong. Perhaps it wasn't the lifestyle that he had become accustomed to. I'm not going to go live out in the hills. I'm a city guy. I'm more sophisticated than that. We don't know. Apparently, he never went. We never hear another word about Lot. Is this the most pathetic picture you can imagine? Lot, who knew the promises that God made to Abraham, knew that in Abraham's household was everything he needs, and here he is, drunk in incestuous relationships, living in a cave. And he won't go home. Folks, all the covenant promises that surrounded Abraham have now been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And that place of covenant blessing is found in Christ, And in the company of his people, his church. Here there is security. This is God's family who are held by his hand. Of whom he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Here there is forgiveness. For here the gospel is preached. Grace to undeserving sinners. Because Christ died on the cross. Here there is restoration. There is encouragement, there is healing, there is instruction, there is accountability as the resurrection life of Jesus is lived out in a community of people. Here there is true fellowship for we are members of one body, members of Christ, living in relationship to him and therefore in relationship to one another. Here there is hope, not just hope for today, not hope for great prosperity today, but hope for eternity. why don't we run, run to Jesus and to the covenant community of his people? What habits or preoccupations or lifestyle keeps us away? What pride, what haughtiness, what smugness, what stubbornness, what resistance to repentance, what lack of faith, what keeps you away? may say, I'm not staying away. You're preaching to the choir. I'm sitting here this morning. May I speak quite frankly? The risk of offending some? Many are staying away. 
You may come on Sunday. You may be a member of this church with your name on the roll. But in this church and in virtually every church, it's not a Wise Lake Chapel problem. It's the way it is everywhere. Most of the people sitting there on Sunday morning keep themselves detached from the body the rest of the time. They find their friends elsewhere, find our help elsewhere. I don't need that much Bible study. I don't like to get together during the week. I don't find Sunday evenings convenient. Whatever the excuse is. It's just exactly what Lot did. He just kept himself detached from Abraham. But in Abraham's household were the blessings of God. And he sat in a stupid cave. And in the community, the household of faith, as God calls his church, are the blessings of God. And we scurry around. Swinging in for a moment, but not nurtured and growing and connected on a daily basis, deeply. Why? Don't know why. Maybe the same thing that kept Lot distant. Stubbornness, don't want anybody that close. Don't want anybody having an opinion about what I'm doing. I'm too sophisticated for that. I don't know why. I know only that it set Lot up for disaster. As he reproduced the sins of his past, sins that grieved him in his daughters, in his children, in his grandchildren. And it left him the miserable but still unrepentant prodigal for whom there was no happy ending as there was in the tale of the prodigal son. I call you to flee to Jesus and to the company of his people for here is the blessing of God. Somewhere somebody might make a movie of a story like this. There's probably some kind of movie around already with some plot of a man in an incestuous relationship with his daughters. If someone made such a movie, it would probably be praised for its honesty to the real world, to the domestic problem of incest. And of course it would tantalize audiences as it stepped across the line violating taboos. God preserved this account not for that, but for a much higher purpose. For here we learn what sin is like. And here we learn that it is a constant threat. It doesn't wait till you're prepared. When you least expect it, when you're least prepared, there it is, terrorizing you. And here we learn that sin only brings more sin. Little sin 
tolerated creates greater sin in yourself and in your children and in your descendants. And here we also learn from what we do not read, from the absence of Lot's reconciliation with Abraham and with the covenant God. Here we learn to flee to the place of God's promise, to flee to Jesus and the household faith. You see, Mr. Leopold is wrong. This text is a great passage for our sermon. This is God's word to us this morning. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, that your salvation and your word to us doesn't just come in nice, pretty terms like we would find on a Christmas card. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us in the midst of the ugliness of the world as it is. And there you've addressed our needs, and you've warned us, and you've called us to yourself. Oh, grant us grace, Lord, to listen to the warning and to respond to the call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.